You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we were grateful for the opportunity to interview Professor Christine Durrance, an applied microeconomist concentrating in health economics and policy. Professor Durrance's research focuses on maternal, infant, and reproductive health, risky behavior and substance use, and antitrust and competition policy in healthcare markets. Professor Durrance is also one of the investigators for the Collaborative for Reproductive Equity at UW-Madison. She shared her insights into the inequities in vaccine distribution across the globe, and we also discussed several other research projects that inform her scholarship and teaching. We really enjoyed this conversation with Professor Durrance, and we hope you will too. Thank you so much for joining us on 1050 Bascom today, Professor Durrance. Thank you, Claire, for having me. Um, I'm excited to talk to this group. Since it's your first time with us today... Let's just start with a little bit about you and your background and some of your research interests. What was it that shaped your interest towards economics and in particular that focus on health policy? Sure, I'd love to. So I grew up in economics. Um, My father was an economist who first had a university job like the one I have here at UW um, and then transitioned into private litigation consulting. So I grew up going to economics conferences and having dinner with my father and his economist friends. Um, And that was dinner table conversation for me as a young child and uh, growing up. I thought at one time I might go to medical school. That was what my parents wanted me to do. But it turns out I'm not very good at chemistry or biology or other courses that are important inputs to becoming um, a physician. And in undergrad, I found a love of economics and statistics and decided to ultimately pursue a career where I could combine my interest in health with economics and statistics. We'd love to hear about the professional narrative that you have from your time as an undergrad and kind of thinking through majors. You talked a little bit about it onto grad school and then your work at UNC Chapel Hill. Sure. So so I did my undergraduate work at Emory University in Atlanta, and I decided a little bit late as an undergrad that I was interested in pursuing a PhD in economics. And what that means is that I had to take a whole bunch of math classes later in my undergraduate career than would have been ideal if I had started out thinking that was the path. And that's sort of a common misconception about getting a PhD in economics A lot of students don't realize that you really do need quite a bit of math curriculum um, to be successful and competitive um, to get into those types of programs. And so I had some catch up to do. But the other important part of my undergraduate experience was I wrote an honors thesis with um, an incredible mentor in my undergraduate institution. And I have always sort of encouraged students to take that path because that was a very valuable experience for me and one that shaped my interest in doing research and going to graduate school and doing more of that, learning more tools, becoming uh, more adept at doing that. 
so in graduate school, um, I learned the academic life of writing and researching um, and doing more of that kind of work. And ultimately, I got a PhD in economics. I benefited from the mentorship of uh, many people along the way, and they are the reason that I've had the jobs that I have now. Um, and I'm appreciative to those uh, relationships and those mentorships along the way. Um, I was fortunate to um, end up with an interdisciplinary position with my PhD in economics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the Department of Public Policy, where I was on the faculty for 13 years before uh, I joined uh, UW-Madison last August. I earned tenure um, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and joined UW in August of 2020, um, in part because I was uh, interested in making a change and I was part of a cluster hire here at UW-Madison. I'm not sure if everybody knows what a cluster hire is, but at UW-Madison, uh, cluster hires are sets of positions that the university supports, where the university is basically interested in hiring faculty that live in different departments, but are all working on sort of a common research area. And so I was hired as part of a cluster hire in reproductive health, where my position lives in the La Follette School of Public Affairs, and there are two other uh, female faculty members who were hired as part of that cluster hire at the same time as me or around the same time as me. And one of those faculty members uh, sits in population health and the other sits in gender and women's studies. That's really interesting. I guess I hadn't heard much about that either. And I think we're going to get more into that area of your research in just a second. But we have had this one question that's been on our minds a lot lately related to the pandemic regarding vaccine ownership and distribution, which is taking a little bit of a turn here. But we recently interviewed one of your colleagues at La Follette, and she had recommended you as someone we might talk to about your take on vaccine inequities and specifically distribution across the country and across the world in general. So if you wouldn't mind, do you have an analysis of how we've talked about vaccine ownership in the U.S. or related to the issue of inequity? Sure. So, so I'm teaching an undergraduate introduction to health policy class, and the topic of vaccine development and distribution and inequities in vaccine distribution, that's sort of evolved over the two semesters that I've taught that class and will continue to evolve. Um, into the fall 2021 semester where we will talk about it again. The way that we talked about these issues in my introduction to health policy class um, is to think about um, sort of the inequities that may exist between high and middle income countries and low income countries in terms of access to vaccines. In particular, the way we talked about this in my course is thinking about patent policy and intellectual policy intellectual property, which provides um, incentive for innovation. So we typically think about patent policy or intellectual property providing limited exclusivity or what we might call limited monopoly power to the inventor or uh, to the developer of the innovation. So here we're thinking about um, the developers of these new COVID-19 vaccines. 
So these kinds of policies would preclude other firms from having access to the confidential information that's used to develop and produce these vaccines. Um, and patent policy is typically designed to give firms exclusivity and therefore market power so they can recoup the large research and development and innovation costs made during the discovery and the process that's required to go through uh, FDA trials. So the Biden administration has supported waiving intellectual property and patents in the case of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, some are worried that this could create a dangerous precedent in thinking about sort of the purpose and the underlying rationale for patent policy. But on the other hand, a number of these big pharmaceutical companies have accepted um, sizable federal dollars um, for vaccine development. And even those that haven't accepted federal dollars for vaccine development have accepted large government uh, contracts um, for vaccine purchases. So there are, there are reasons to think that there may be you know, some, uh, some support for thinking about uh, waiving IP or waiving uh, patents in this case. It's interesting, Moderna has issued a statement saying that it will not enforce its intellectual property. This was actually a, a question on my introduction to a health policy exam in the spring semester. Um, while J&J &J and Pfizer have not issued similar types of statements, the problem is, is that this waiver of IP by Moderna and the potential call for this by Pfizer and J&J uh, &J doesn't alone solve the vaccine inequity question that you asked me um, at the outset. There are capacity constraints in the production of these vaccines. The development and the production of mRNA vaccine technology is very complex. Even if we waived intellectual property in this case, there may still be supply constraints and delays in making more vaccine. And also we wanna make sure that those who are making the vaccine, if the patent was licensed or if the intellectual property was offered to another pharmaceutical company, quality is still very important in solving our global pandemic. So it is important to note that the U.S. has donated millions of doses to lower income countries and other countries have done the same, but those donations are still far away from the level of donations or the level of vaccination that we would need to see to get to a vaccination rate at the world's population that would get us um, out of this crisis. So I think it's important for us to think about this as a global crisis, not just a domestic crisis, because we are a global economy and this will take all of our nations working together um, to resolve this pandemic. Just as a follow-up before we move on here, do you have any policy recommendations for the U.S. or maybe abroad that you think could help improve the situation? Or is the web of factors just too big to be affected by making one or two policy changes at this point? I think some of the concerns that we're seeing are with supply, and there are ways to sort of ramp up production and ramp up production of the inputs needed in the production of the vaccine. And part of that is sort of economic and logistical, but some of the other questions are more ethical in nature, right? Thinking a little bit about how we prioritize vaccines at home versus how we prioritize vaccines abroad. And that, that gets into some more normative questions. Definitely. What do you make of the WHO's take on a moratorium on booster shots before some countries get access to vaccines at all or widespread access to vaccines? Right. So I think we're still learning about how effective and long lasting our current vaccines are against COVID-19. 
and learning more daily about their ability to address um, the variants that we're seeing that are emerging. I think currently it's unclear whether these vaccine boosters are necessary and if so, for which populations. Um, I just saw a series of news articles last night indicating that the FDA is expected to recommend third shot boosters of Pfizer and Moderna for individuals in the US who are immunocompromised. And it's possible that we may see extensions of this recommendation to other groups as well. But right now we're thinking that the FDA may be just recommending these third shot boosters um, to those who are immunocompromised. So I think we're still learning whether or not this will be necessary. And I think at this point, we don't know enough about whether or not everyone is going to need boosters and if so, when. But related to this question is this question of full FDA approval and whether the FDA, the FDA is expected to authorize Pfizer's um, COVID-19 vaccine with full approval soon. That FDA approval may change the way employers think about vaccines or the way colleges address potential mandates for, for vaccines coming to work or coming to school. And hopefully that may also address some of the vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing in this country if we can move from emergency use to full approval. And I think related to this as well, because we've been talking about sort of supply constraints um, is vaccine trials and approval for, uh, for younger populations, for younger children. So millions of children aged five to 11 are headed back to school and we would like to protect these children as well. Um, this is the third year of school, both for our younger kids and our college students that's been affected by this pandemic. Um, and if the vaccine is approved for this age group, we'll also need to think about ramping up production for this group as well, which may further complicate some of these supply issues. Last question on pandemic related things for now, but is there anything you've learned over the past year to two years during the pandemic that will inform your future research or your teaching and maybe surprises or major takeaways in general? Sure, well, I have learned so much uh, during this uh, pandemic. Um, my family and I moved um, from Chapel Hill to Madison in the midst of all of this. Um, and so I think I've learned a lot as a teacher, as a parent, um, as a researcher, as a human being. Um, I think we've all learned a lot about resiliency, which is important in all aspects of our lives. Um, as a health policy researcher, I think I've realized that our lives are um, a little more fragile than maybe we, we realized. Uh, maybe we knew it, but we didn't quite realize it until the pandemic hit hard. Um, the pandemic has overwhelmed hospitals and claimed countless lives here and abroad. Millions of people lost their jobs when the country shut down. And because for many of us, our insurance is tied to our jobs, many people lost both jobs and health insurance at a time of a public health crisis. Um, as a result of this and many other losses, the federal government has had to step in uh, in many ways to support uh, American households and American families. Um, so I think as a researcher, um, one thing that we've thought a lot about this year is not only the direct effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on health and health outcomes and health institutions, but also the fact that this pandemic has um, spillovers to all parts of our economy and all aspects of our lives. And these are the kinds of questions that researchers will be asking um, for years to come how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected 
education for our children, for our college students? How has the pandemic affected the environment and climate change? How has the pandemic affected social welfare participation, job loss, income? How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected state tax revenues or tourism? The list goes on and on. And I think what's important in thinking about this is not only the direct and the indirect effects of COVID, but also thinking about the fact that this pandemic is unlikely to have homogeneous impacts across different groups in society. I think what researchers will be looking at for years to come um, is trying to understand the heterogeneous impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and understanding the effects of this type of pandemic across different groups in society, thinking about effects across income and across race and ethnicity and across other socioeconomic, socioeconomic characteristics. I feel like there's so much to unpack there alone that could be a whole nother episode. But for now, let's jump into some of your more broad research interests. And would you be able to tell us what kind of work you do and maybe share with us some projects you're working on right now? Sure. So my training is in economics and I am mostly a empirical applied researcher. I think about my work as sort of falling in three main areas of research. The first is reproductive maternal and infant health. The second is substance use and risky behavior, largely focused currently on the opioid crisis, but also including topics like violence and child maltreatment. And the third area that I'm currently working in is in antitrust and competition policy, specifically focused within healthcare markets. And let's jump into talking about some of your work with CORE, which stands for Collaborative for Reproductive Equity here at UW-Madison. What is CORE's mission? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, so CORE, the Collaborative for Reproductive Equity here um, at UW-Madison, um, is an interdisciplinary research center that's based in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology in the School of Medicine. CORE's mission is to improve reproductive health, um, equity, and autonomy in Wisconsin and across the country through rigorous interdisciplinary research that informs policy systems and program change. CORE is conducting research that is informed by the needs and the priorities of community stakeholders in reproductive health, rights, and justice. And CORE also collaborates with community-based organizations, advocacy organizations, public health departments, and healthcare providers. And what kinds of projects have you been working on with CORE? Sure. So I think I'm probably best um, suited to speak about my own projects, but uh, researchers at CORE are sort of broadly interested in topics related to reproductive health and reproductive equity with projects that could include uh, topics related to access to contraception, various issues related to abortion, access to healthcare and reproductive healthcare in Catholic healthcare facilities. Um, and in particular, um, some of us are working on topics related to uh, criminalizing pregnancy, or more specifically, thinking about policies that treat prenatal substance use during pregnancy as the legal equivalent of child abuse and neglect. So within this um, broad area of reproductive and maternal and infant health, I have a series of projects with co-authors 
that's designed to understand policies that are punitive towards prenatal substance use during pregnancy and what potential outcomes those policies may have for mothers and infants. So in particular, my colleague and I have uh, done some work to understand the effect of these state level policies on um, neonatal abstinence syndrome rates. So neonatal abstinence syndrome or NAS is a withdrawal condition at birth, um, which is typically derived from in utero exposure to substances, typically opioids. Um, and so during this opioid crisis that the US is currently uh, facing, we've seen not only large increases in opioid overdose mortality and other related harms from opioid use and misuse and abuse, um, but we've also seen big increases in neonatal abstinence syndrome. So thinking about sort of what are the big impacts of the opioid crisis on particular vulnerable, vulnerable populations like reproductive age people or pregnant people um, and infants, and one of the outcomes that researchers look at is the rate of neonatal abstinence syndrome. So in our work, we've looked at the effect of uh, punitive prenatal substance use policies on neonatal abstinence syndrome and have found that those policies do not reduce neonatal abstinence syndrome, but they may result in um, reductions in pregnant people searching, seeking out substance use treatment. So that could be a potential unintended consequence of these types of policies. We also have a paper that is forthcoming that looks at the impact of these policies on foster care entries for children, uh, for infants, for children less than one. And we find increases in foster care entries as a result of these policies, because these policies treat prenatal substance use as legal equivalent of child abuse or neglect in those states. And so that raises the likelihood um, that a child is removed from the home. Um, we are also looking at whether or not these policies negatively affect the provider-patient relationship and result in uh, changes in prenatal care initiation or utilization, as well as looking at the effect of these policies on child maltreatment reports. So what happens before the foster care outcomes that I was just describing. First, there's a report to child welfare services, and then there's potentially a removal. So this is a, a big project that we're working on to try to better understand uh, the impact of these policies that are more punitive in nature uh, to women who are using substances during pregnancy. We're going to turn away from talking about research for just a moment to discuss some of the courses you teach at La Follette. Many of the poli-sci majors here take analytic tools for public policy, as well as introduction to health policy, as I'm sure you already know. And we recently talked to one of your colleagues, Mary Davis Mycod, about the new health policy certificate, which we know a lot of our majors are also really excited about. So would you be able to tell us what your goals are for teaching some of your health policy courses? Sure. So I started teaching this class at UW-Madison in the fall, um, and I've taught this class in the fall and the spring of last year. Um, this course is an introduction to health policy in the United States and is one of the courses that is part of our new certificate in health policy. It's a set of three courses, and this is the first. Um, the way that I think about this class is it's meant to truly be an introduction to health policy in the United States. 
we spend the first half of the class focusing on characteristics and components of the US healthcare system. First, thinking about the size of health in our economy and what we spend our money on and the size of that spending relative to other sources of spending. We talk about what predicts health, what determines health. So thinking about the determinants of health, the social determinants of health beyond factors, just like uh, beyond factors uh, solely like medical care. Um, we talk about the role of economics and markets. Um, we talk about concepts like risk aversion and risk pooling and the role of insurance. We cover topics like uh, private insurance, government insurance through Medicare and Medicaid. And we also spend time talking about the Affordable Care Act and its various challenges um, since it was passed in 2010. So in that way, we spend the first half of the class sort of getting our bearings on what the US healthcare system looks like. And in the second half of the class, we tackle special topics in health policy. The nice part about the way this class is structured is that the second half of the class can really be anything we want it to be. And those topics have changed over time, depending on um, sort of the current health policy landscape. And this past year, and of course this coming year, will include many components that are related to COVID-19 and the public health crisis that we are currently involved in. Other topics, which would probably be there in any semester, include topics related to antitrust and competition policy because we have those issues uh, highly prevalent in our healthcare markets, uh, talking about patents and pharmaceutical drug pricing. We've spent time talking about uh, new state policies towards recreational marijuana, as well as earlier policies towards medical marijuana. Um, we've spent time talking about the opioid crisis. Um, we spend a segment talking about behavioral economics and nudges. We also spend some time talking about vaccines and of course the public health crisis. So in my hope in that class, I hope that students get sort of an introduction and exposure to uh, health policy in the US and sort of an introduction to the policy analysis process. We don't go all the way into that the way that I do in the other class that you mentioned that I teach, PA380, which is analytical tools um, for public policy. But I do hope students begin to think about what is the problem that we're trying to address in a particular area of health policy and what are potential solutions that we can think about that could help alleviate that type of public or social problem. You briefly mentioned addressing risky health behaviors and risk assessment in general. And that topic is something that I think is so interesting because it seems like there's more talk in news and in classrooms right now about cost benefit analysis of your own behavior as an individual as the pandemic has continued and as vaccines have become more available. And when we think about cost benefit analysis in kind of an academic way, or probably in an economic way is what you are most familiar with. We know that we measure things different that way than at the individual level. Would you be able to kind of help explain that distinction? Um, so I think the way that I think about this is, you know, from a, from a public perspective, when we talk about cost benefit analysis, we're talking about valuing 
various costs and various benefits now and into the future and discounting those costs and benefits from the future back to the present where we would use that cost benefit analysis or that net present value calculation as a basis for whether or not we should make a particular public decision. And when we do that from a public perspective or from a government per perspective, we need to account for things that are beyond private benefits. We have to think about costs and benefits from the government's perspective. So we need to value things like the cost of vaccines, the cost of distribution, the cost of education, and the possible risks. We also have to think about the benefits to the individual as well as potential benefits of herd immunity, lower community infections, lower hospitalizations, a more fully functioning economy, and so on. At the individual level, this is a little bit different because at the individual level, the way that economists typically think about individual behavior is to think of each individual as hyper-rational, which you might think of as selfish. You think about your own costs and benefits and you don't take into account the costs and benefits that your decisions create potentially for other individuals. So we often talk about this as sort of a classic example of a positive externality. And I used to talk about this um, with respect to the flu vaccination, and you can really extend this to any vaccination, including the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so this is a classic case of a positive externality where because individuals tend to take account of their own costs and benefits and not the costs and benefits that they create for society, we see too few vaccinations, right? So we see too few flu vaccines and we're seeing too few COVID-19 vaccines because individuals tend to not take into account the benefit that they create to society through herd immunity by not only benefiting themselves from getting the vaccine, but also um, benefiting others by getting the vaccine. So in economics, the way that we think about resolving this is to subsidize vaccines. So it makes vaccines less expensive. We've done that. Vaccines are, are free. You can get a COVID-19 vaccine in this country for free. Um, we've made them easy to access. You can get usually flu vaccines on campus or uh, at CVS or through uh, flu shot clinics. We're making COVID vaccines similarly easy to access. They weren't always easy to access, but they're easier to access now. And by providing education, right, to try to incentivize people to understand why they should get a vaccine, both for themselves and for the public benefit. The problem I think you're, you're asking me and thinking about this question, though, is that people's perception of risks and costs are different. And that's part of what we're seeing um, in the U.S. today. So it's not just about, you know, your own individual decisions, your own costs and benefits, but people differ in the way that they value those costs and risks and benefits with respect to vaccination. And kind of speaking of access to healthcare more broadly, let's talk about the Affordable Care Act for a second. Where are we at in terms of ensuring access to healthcare for people in the US? Because this has been something that's been debated for years at this point and probably isn't going away anytime soon. Why is the US such a difficult place to ensure healthcare to workers and to children especially? So our healthcare system is tricky because there are so many pieces of our healthcare system. Um, some people say our health uh, healthcare system is fragmented. 
So Medicare is a government funded program that serves our elderly population over age 65. Medicaid serves low income populations, but those low income populations who are served by Medicaid differ depending on what state you live in and who you are, whether you're a parent or a childless adult or a pregnant person. And then the private market, either through employer-sponsored health insurance or through the individual market, serves other individuals. So it's a complex healthcare marketplace with many different components. As someone who examines this often, do you think that there's a chance that we would improve some of those health policies that we have in place to make it a better system? Sure. Well, I think that's part of what the Affordable Care Act has done in smaller increments. Um, So the Affordable Care Act has aimed to cover more Americans with health insurance, improve health care outcomes, reduce medical debt, um, and hopefully reduce health care costs in the long run. There have been a number of challenges to this over time. But big movements on healthcare are hard politically, as as you all know. Bernie Sanders ran on a presidential platform of Medicare for All, um, and President Biden ran on a platform with a a public Medicare-like option. Um, And that discussion has, has sort of seemed to have stalled at this point. But we're in the middle of a public health crisis. So I think, you know, moving the needle on big health policy change at this point is at this moment is probably unlikely. But there are smaller, important health policy uh, changes that could potentially address some of what you're asking me. So one of the things that's being discussed at the federal level is extensions in Medicaid coverage in the postpartum period. So in most states, Medicaid covers uh, pregnant people through 60 days postpartum, so 60 days following the birth of a child, continuing Medicaid coverage beyond 60 days through 12 months, for example, which is what part of this policy discussion involves, could potentially reduce maternal mortality and maternal morbidity. In Wisconsin, pregnant people lose Medicaid coverage following 60 days postpartum. And I and some co-authors are investigating this question, um, trying to understand what percentage of women lose coverage following 60 days postpartum, Medicaid women lose coverage following 60 days postpartum, and who these women are. And it's possible that federal or state policy change that could extend coverage into 12 months postpartum could help support uh, maternal and infant health. There have also been other proposals aimed at addressing prescription drug prices, both from the prior Trump administration and into uh, the Biden administration. There have been calls for importing drugs from other countries, including Canada, directly regulating the price of pharmaceutical drugs, or allowing Medicare to negotiate for its own drug prices, because Medicare is such a large buyer giving them some ability to negotiate and giving them some monopsony power against uh, the monopoly power of the big pharmaceutical companies could potentially uh, rein in some of our healthcare costs with respect specifically to prescription drug prices. Interesting. We are running a little bit low on time, but that's, I feel like, also a whole nother can of worms. But one final objective of the class you're teaching we wanted to ask you about is communicating policy decisions. And if we, if you're willing, would you care to weigh in on how you think the CDC has done 
the past year and a half, or maybe just the past three or four months communicating about masks and mask mandates? I think people are frustrated with the changing guidance that's coming from the CDC and from our other leaders. But I think we're watching science unfolding in real time. And we are watching the scientific process happen right now. We don't know everything about the virus. We don't know how it will change. We don't know how long vaccines will protect us or protect us from the emerging variants. Um, so I think we need to be patient. The guidance that's coming at the federal level is being implemented at the state level in very different cultural and political environments. There are differences in mask wearing, differences in school closures, vaccine rates, many differences across the states in our country. And I think the CDC is trying to prevent another shutdown um, of the economy. And I share um, some of these frustrations that, that come from, from you know, the, the people that you mentioned in, in your question. But I think, we, I think we need to be patient. As we wrap up our conversation for today, we've been asking everyone in honor of a really tough year and a half, what is something that makes you hopeful for the future? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I have a, a couple of answers to that. First, I'm thankful to science for bringing us a vaccine that can get us out of this pandemic, hopefully as quickly as possible. Um, I'm also thankful for resiliency. My family and I moved a year ago in the middle of what has turned out to be a much longer pandemic than we may have anticipated when we thought um, moving was a good idea. And it's very encouraging to me to see the resiliency of my children and I think myself as well. And I'm optimistic about the future. Um, I think some people are dreaming about traveling abroad again and eating inside at restaurants and going to music venues. I'm dreaming about teaching my classes in a more normal setting without my mask. I'm thinking about meeting my new colleagues face-to-face and having lunches and coffee and the normal kinds of activities one would do when they join a new university and a new school. Um, and I'm dreaming about sitting in a seminar room, listening to someone giving a talk on a paper and doing less Zoom. That's one that I think a lot of people can relate to. That is a great way to leave off for today. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And we would love to have you back in the future to continue talking about some of these ideas. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.